Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha, and welcome to the first Student Sustainability Coalition Roundtable of the semester. My name is Ari Eisenstadt, and we're joined here by some very special guests that will be talking about all different topics around green infrastructure. Thank you all so much for being with us. Let's start with the round of introductions, first with Max. Thanks, Ari. Uh, my name is Max Bendis. I'm a grad student here at UH studying sustainable agriculture with Dr. Noah Lincoln. I also run science communications for the Society for Conservation Biology here in Hawaii. So I'm very excited to be back for another roundtable. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my name is Aurelia Gonzalez. I am a master's student in the Natural Resources and Environmental Management Department, um, but I'm president of Hawaii Streams and Ecosystems and also a member of uh, Protect Our Alawai Watersheds. Thank you. My name is Leanna Setian. I'm an undergraduate student um, for Natural Resources and Environmental Management, and I am one of the co-founders of Green Walls Hawaii, and I'm excited to talk about how green walls can play a part in the solution um, for urban development. My name is Liliana Carbone. Uh, I grew up here in Hawaii, but I um, attended college on the East Coast and studied philosophy and political science. And I uh, co-founded Green Walls Hawaii with Liana, who just introduced herself. And we were able to bridge our respective interests in environmental science and pragmatic solutions to real-world issues. And that's why we're here today. Thank you all so much. Uh, and again, my name is Ari Eisenstadt. I'm the podcast director here at KTUH. I'm also the founder of the United Nations Association, and we just celebrated our 74th anniversary, uh, the founding of the United Nations, uh, with a celebration at the state capitol uh, this past week on October 24th. Uh, you can learn more about the United Nations Association at our website, unausa.org. Uh, I'm also the graduate student organization representative to the UH Student Caucus, uh, and this past week we passed an exciting resolution around divesting from fossil fuels. So we're about to talk about that, uh, the Alawai Flood Mitigation Plan, the new stormwater fee, and this exciting new social enterprise around Green Walls Hawaii. So stay tuned on KTUH. We're back now and talking about our October General Assembly resolution with the graduate student organization. Uh, a little background on this is that in 2015, we had students at the University of Hawaii that moved for the endowment to divest from fossil fuels. And for the most part, we've done that, but we have still the UH Foundation that has invested in these oil and gas companies. Um, so I'd love to share with you all something that we just passed uh, at the graduate student organization, and then this past weekend at the University of Hawaii Hilo, all the members of the student caucus came together, representing over 50,000 students, uh, to call on this divestment. 
So first, whereas fossil fuel-based air pollution was estimated to cause 4.2 million premature deaths worldwide in 2016, inflame a global mass extinction of over 200 species a year, and put millions of homes in danger from the climate emergency directly due to human activity. Whereas $19 billion in Hawaii assets are at risk from a 3.2-foot increase in sea level, and all are vulnerable to extreme weather, record temperatures, and ecosystem biodiversity loss. Whereas all member states of the United Nations have signed the Paris Climate Agreement, and the state of Hawaii is dedicated to achieve the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Whereas sustainable investing has a higher return and lower volatility than funds that do not have environment, social, and governance portfolio screening, and over a thousand organizations have divested from fossil fuels, representing over $11 trillion in institutional investments. Whereas the University of Hawaii Board of Regents voted to divest from the university's $66 million endowment from fossil fuels in 2015, however, the University of Hawaii Foundation endowment of $322 million still owns equity in fossil fuel companies. And be it resolved that the Graduate Student Organization and the University of Hawaii Student Caucus calls upon the University of Hawaii Foundation to divest from all fossil fuel companies by the end of the spring 2020 semester. So that's our resolution. It passed unopposed in GSO and unanimously by all 10 campuses in the Student Caucus. And we have this exciting deadline now of the end of the spring semester. Uh, what are all of your thoughts on this resolution? Are you optimistic about this opportunity? And what do you think that the UH Foundation could turn this fund into? What, what are some ideas that, that could be invested in in talking about our topic of green infrastructure that, that you all think? Well, congratulations. I think it's a long time coming for that to happen for the University of Hawaii. I know that some other campuses have adopted that uh, to divest their money out of fossil fuels. Uh, so congratulations. And, you know, I didn't know that we had a choice now to use that money. Um, but, yeah, I think that there's opportunities for urban planning uh, and sustainable infrastructure for our future dealing with, you know, whether it be drought or heavier rains or a sea level rise. Yeah. I'm, so I'm not much of an expert on investing. I'm just an expert on plants for the most part. Uh, but I do know that UH, especially here on Oahu, is a leader in the community. And I think it's important that we show that not only are we committed to talking about sustainability uh, for students and having these sustainability projects on campus, but we're also backing up that talk with our actions. And this divestment campaign is very much one of those things. It would be hypocritical for the, the UH system to be saying that sustainability is important while at the same time investing in fossil fuels, which are inherently unsustainable. Yeah, congrats once again. Um, I think it's a huge step forward to uh, reimagine the way we can use energy and to divest from fossil fuels. And I think, again, UH is a leader in, in sustainable development and um, changing the norm. And so that's, that's a great step forward. I think, um, obviously, congratulations. Uh, but also, you know, this is exciting for the university because it can create problems for a university to advertise itself as um, an institution that 
promote sustainability while having problematic investments. And the thing about the fossil fuel industry is it's one that's facing mounting criticism while there are other industries that are growing and that make more sense from an investment perspective. So for example, the green building industry is valued at over $300 billion right now and it's expected to increase substantially. So investing into a market that will grow is a good return on your investment. If you want your uh, endowment to benefit the students, you want to put it into an industry that's growing as opposed to on the verge of being left behind. Absolutely. The University of California endowment just divested their $80 billion fund from fossil fuels. And the wow. primary reason they, they cited was the financial risk that um, it, it's too much of a danger to hold these fossil fuel companies still just from the financial fiduciary perspective. Um, But I think there's also this misconception that you have to sacrifice the social and environmental impact for economic impact. And I think that this new sustainable, regenerative uh, economic model really shows the, the opposite. Um, I think also, though, we see these really new interesting uh, uh, lawsuits, I think, that that you alluded to around fossil fuel companies not disclosing what they knew about climate change decades ago. So it will be interesting to see what happens with that and if they'll be uh, obliged to pay for the damages of so much of what they've done. And this was also really uh, inspired by our K2H's 50th anniversary that we raised We raised a fund in honor of um, some family members who passed away and learned about this in working with the UH Foundation, that they were still invested with this management fund, Cambridge Associates, in Boston um, that still, still is investing in fossil fuels. So um, it was really our work with K2H and fundraising, and we're still doing lots of fundraising, and we hope that this actually could be a big push for our foundation and for the endowment uh, to raise more money. There are over a hundred other universities with over a billion dollars in their endowment fund. So we, we hope that this can really be an opportunity to increase our activity, increase what we do with with this fund and how we can really invest in local sustainable enterprises, University of Hawaii alumni and people that are really giving back to this local community. Because if not us, then then who? You know, I had a good friend a few months ago bring up to me that it's not that people avoid green solutions because they're bad people. It's not that someone chooses a plastic straw or strays away from a green roof because they want to harm the planet. It's because they're not aware of a better option that they can actually afford or that actually makes sense. And I think universities are starting to realize that there are actual alternatives to fossil fuels. They have to do something with their endowment. And I think now businesses that are uh, generating these new exciting innovations in green building and uh, clean energy are giving opportunities to universities and to citizens to put their money somewhere better. Exactly. I think people want solutions, and it takes the government a long time to implement them, um, but it takes businesses one idea and a few um, determined hard workers to make it happen, and I think that's what's happening here. Yeah, that certainly is a trend that I've seen kind of across the board when it comes to different areas of sort of um, sustainable action or increasing the sustainability of infrastructure and industry. It very much is we are trying to sell sustainability as an economic model because our attempts to sell it as a moral model have clearly failed. Uh, It's unfortunate that our society is built up around uh, or as so sort of um, money-centric, so to speak. But it's the reality of the world that we live in. And it is not only possible, but highly feasible 
to make sustainability more profitable than the conventional industrial systems that we have in place, especially in sustainable agriculture and also in sustainable development and infrastructure. And uh, I think that that's, that's really a big narrative that's being pushed, that climate change is actually not only an existential threat to humanity, but the greatest business opportunity yep. in history, that, that we have an opportunity to completely transform our economy. Um, and I think it really starts with energy, but it goes far beyond that to agriculture, to, to water, and to so many, so many ways that we interact with our natural environment through all the 17 sustainable development goals. Um, so if, if you have a thought on this divestment resolution, please respond uh, and comment on our K2H Honolulu Facebook page. We'll have a thread for this Student Sustainability Coalition Roundtable. Um, but I think that this also segues into Aurelia's uh, latest uh, topic around the Alawai Flood Mitigation Plan. Can you share with us what's been the latest with that project? Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on as far as uh, the talk of stormwater management. Uh, what's happening right now, and that you may have heard in the news, is that there is a proposed uh, plan. It's called the Alawai Flood Mitigation Project. And this is a, um, a plan by the Army Corps of Engineers to have uh, dams up in the upper watersheds of um, Manoa and Palolo uh, Valley and then have um, detention basins uh, made out of parks. You can think of it as like a, a pool park uh, where in the case of a, a, a large storm, water is redirected to fill up um, a baseball park or something. And then you have in downstream near Waikiki, uh, the Alawai Canal, would, the, the wall would actually be raised. Um, and so this plan was supposed to help against a hundred year flood. Um, but in the models that the Army Corps of Engineers have of a 100-year flood without the plan and with the plan in place, it really only protects Waikiki, um, the economic engine of Hawaii, uh, leaving um, the Mo'ili'ili Bowl, as they call it, because it's below sea level or it would, it'd be the most impacted area by a flood um, and other areas. It, those areas still wouldn't be protected even with this plan in, in place. And the major issue that people have had is that the the people that lived in these areas, the stakeholders, the businesses of this area, uh, were not properly engaged with the planning process. And so because we had money that was handed over um, to us to to do the project, it was uh, the project was a bit rushed and the community is speaking out into have alternative solutions for this plan. Nobody wants property and lives to be in jeopardy uh, by any means, but I think we have businesses that are adapting and we have schools that are implementing more sustainable designs and practices. And, and so this is something that we've advocated for in our schools. And, you know, we've had people to, you know, design different alternatives. And, and so why aren't we seeing that when, when some of these things have shown to be um, very impactful? So on Tuesday, uh, just recently, we had a grassroots led forum and we had Olelo of uh, they videotaped the forum. We had a really great attendance. And this is where people were able to, to speak out um, and introduce some of their alternative practices. Um, I spoke uh, specifically on green infrastructure, and that's kind of the topic of today. Uh, green infrastructure is a large umbrella term for 
um, man-made designs that mimic natural processes to infiltrate, filter, uh, store, and repurpose water. And so some some things under green infrastructure you can think of are uh, stormwater gardens, uh, green roofs, living walls. You have cisterns, even just underground retention tanks and trenches that store water. The issue with stormwater, for those that don't know, is that it is a form of pollution. Uh, we have a system here in Honolulu that uh, the storm when it rains, it hits your roof, it hits your patios and your in your parking lots and our street, and it goes into our storm drain. And that water then is directed straight into the stream, and then it goes straight to the ocean. And so because we have a urban concrete jungle, you know, our, our infrastructure is all concrete, it exacerbates the volume and the sheer energy of water. Um, and it carries on the sediment. Sediment is a, a form of pollution in large quantities and then excess nutrients. Um, and it and it pollutes the stream and it pollutes the reef. And this is why we have browning events and, and the cause of coral bleaching. So uh, green infrastructure is a way to repurpose and re-infiltrate water back into the ground um, and not only provides uh, environmental benefits, but also social and economic benefits for people. That's what's going on right now with the Alawai Flood Mitigation Project. Um, from what I've heard, the Army Corps of Engineers is starting to um, change their plan, whether they're going to adopt some of these solutions that the community has made and um, what Oceanit um, has investigated for the city uh, is is up to them. But we're really hoping that uh, that they do uh, believe that there is a lawsuit against them. And so the plan is is kind of on hold at this point, but it sits um, at the mayor's desk. And really what I want to get folks um, interested in is that that our cities across not only U.S., but across the world are dealing with stormwater issues. Uh, because of climate change, we have exacerbated some, you know, storms are, are, are becoming more frequent in some areas. And when it does storm, it's heavy rain. And, and we've described some of that here in Hawaii as a rain bomb. Because the EPA and the Department of Health are, are hammering down on cities to to deal with the pollution that the, the stormwater infrastructure that we currently have, um, what it does to the system, um, cities don't have a way to kind of rechange their structure. And so other cities are adopting a utility fee. And that is something that is coming for he for Honolulu residents. Um, the city and county of Honolulu has adopted a stormwater um, management fee. And what that means for people is that they're going to be um, taxed based on the amount of impermeable surface that they have or the amount of concrete that you have on your property. And so this may incentivize people adopting um, new solutions like green infrastructure, like living walls um, and, and alternative practices. And and so we have some really awesome guests here who are starting a business um, on green walls. And I'm really excited to hear about their opinions and what it's like to, to work um, 
uh, with this, you know, with the with these designs and in this industry and what what this means for Honolulu in the future. Thank you so much. And before we get to our guests around uh, Green Walls Hawaii, are there any follow up steps first for this Alawai uh, flood mitigation plan uh, that people can get involved with to submit testimony to learn more about what you're doing with Hawaii streams and ecosystems? Yeah, um, there was a point in which that could have been heard. And at this time, I think it's the folks that are doing the lawsuit. Um, but if if you have ideas, if you have concerns, um, Oceanit, who they're an environmental engineer, an engineering firm that is contracted by the city um, right now to get people's input to get community input um, on their ideas for this plan and how uh, the Army Corps plan affects them um, to, you know, consolidate all this community input and then present it in a formal matter to the city and county. So I would say contact Oceanit. Um, it is spelled O-C-E-A-N-I-T. But also, if you're if you're interested in in being involved more, there is a club on campus called Hawaii Streams and Ecosystems. We meet every first Friday and in Sherman 111 at, at 1 30. And you could come join our club and, and get be involved with students and, and see how we can make an impact in the community. Aurelia, thank you so much and looking forward to hearing the latest from that as we go through the semester. Uh, so I, I'd also just like to encourage people to check out Protect Our Alawai Watersheds. Um, they're a sort of community organization group that sort of started the big uproar against this plan. They don't really have a website, but they do have a Facebook page and probably some other social media stuff in case you're not interested in using Facebook anymore like so many of us are. Uh, but just Google them, Protect Our Alawai Watersheds. Great. And uh, th this is such a, a big issue, and we hope to stay involved with it as the Manoa and greater Honolulu community uh, moves forward on this. So now shifting into uh, Liana and Liliana's uh, new social enterprise. First, can you tell us what is a green wall and then what is Green Walls Hawaii? I'll start off by explaining what a green wall is. There are three types of green walls. There's a vertical garden, which would be the most exciting sort of vertical forest that you can imagine. These are very complex systems. And in the US, they're quite rare. A more common system is a green wall, where you have these hydroponic or uh, soil systems where plants are planted into the wall vertically, right? But they have these soil cultures or cloths that help keep the plants in place. And finally, there's something called green facades, which is really what Leanna and I work on. Green facades are climbing vines and shrubs, or hanging vines, which follow a trellis system, a stainless steel tre trellis system, or, you know, in people's backyards, people will sometimes use uh, wooden trellises. And what this does is it allows plants at the base of a building to follow a trellis up and cover an unused space and a wall. And what this does is it creates a barrier between the sun and the building itself, which cools the indoor building, and it also creates a cooler surrounding ambient temperature by half to four degrees Celsius. So that is a pretty straightforward definition of green walls, and the last one is the one that Leanne and I work on. To give you a little visual, I like to think of the trellis as the canvas, the nature as the artist, and the vines, plants as the paint. So 
we are providing the trellis and we're planting the plants in the ground and they just do their work. We also provide a maintenance plan, of course, um, to maintain the plants, but it's practically green facades. Yeah. And um, as you already know, we're the co-founders of Greenwalls Hawaii and we provide living greenwall systems exclusively made of indigenous, endemic, and Polynesian introduced plants. Our mission with our business is to use green facades as a tool to mitigate the effects of climate change and to revitalize the ecosystem that's lost in the process of industrialization. Yeah, you know, I think the the science behind these green walls is very, very interesting, but also just the emotional and psychological impact of these green spaces shouldn't be sort of uh, underestimated. It, it really does provide uh, positive mental health results for people when they are surrounded by plants, when they have these green spaces in their communities, and especially in Waikiki and on Oahu in general, where we're so developed compared to the other islands. We need that green infrastructure in our cities, not just because of the ecological benefits that we get from them, but also because of the psychological benefits that we get to. Exactly. Uh, Honolulu is one of the most dense cities in the nation. And um, I think, you know, seeing nature in the urban environment will really uplift a lot of people. Do you guys think that the examples that we have in Kaka'ako of the vine uh, living walls are, are, are a good example or how would your designs be different? And So it depends. There's a few green facade systems that we've seen in Kaka'ako on parking lots, which are, you know, again, this vi climbing vine which follows a trellis system. And that's really exciting to see. Um, and so that's that's the model that Liana and I are going for. The other green wall that you'll see in Kaka'ako and also in um, the Calico new Kalakau Avenue, yeah, you'll see um, these green walls, the ones, the second type that I described, the ones where you have these com more complex uh, hydroponic systems. And these are beautiful and they're wonderful contributions. And obviously Liana and I are excited about any new type of green wall system that's brought into Hawaii, but they're very expensive. And they're not only expensive to install, but they're very expensive to maintain, and they're prone to failure. Because with any mechanics, you have mechanical issues which can arise. The benefits of green facades is they're pretty limited in the amount of mechanics that they require. Aside from irrigation, they're not depending on much other than the plants to do what they do, which is to climb. And so that gives an opportunity for uh, people who are seeking green walls and, and the benefits, the aesthetic and the environmental benefits that they provide, it gives them uh, less of a risk in terms of investment because they're less prone to failure. Yeah, there's this um, building down by the Ward Center, uh, and they had this large, extensive green wall set up with all of these beautiful ferns, and it just wasn't managed correctly, and all those plants died, and they just had all these brown, sad ferns on the wall, and... It made me sad to see that. Well, it's a lot harder than you'd think because you don't know when the mechanics fail until the plants die. Yeah, exactly. No, I, So I've got a lot of experience working with hydroponics. And even as an expert in plant science, I still kill plants. I have a hard time managing these things. Yeah. And so it's, it's perfectly reasonable that a complex system would break down. And yeah. so if we want these green infrastructure systems to work, they need to either have redundancy built into them or just be plants doing what they do. Because, yeah, yeah. man, plants are really good at growing when we don't do anything to them. Exactly. I mean, look at the forests around Hawaii, right? They're just working themselves. And I, um, I feel very 
encouraged and, and proud of Hawaii for seeing all the green facades around Kaka'ako popping up. And um, although it's uh, discouraging to see, like, failure of some green facades, um, I think it's important to invest time and money into the, the maintenance of the green facades so we can have a lasting impact and so they can, we can optimize the functional benefits of these green facades. Yeah, I I'm, I'm kind of want to tie uh, Max's background as a scientist and, and what you guys are doing um, in the practical sense of, of, of building these things. Um, but the research behind um, green walls, uh, why they failed, and how are they going to work here in Hawaii? Um, and I was wondering if you guys knew um, and could describe what Dr. Andy Kaufman is doing here at UH Hawaii. And we actually, if for those that don't know, uh, if you go into Manoa and you're at the Safeway and uh, if you're at the Longs and you look across the street, you look south across the street, there is a Green Walls uh, research center. And it's been a 15 years in the making research center where um, Dr. Andy Kaufman and his team have uh, designed a very special soil type. Um, and they're trying to calculate, you know, the heat reduction off of a building and and how this is going to be practical for Hawaii homeowners. Um, so do you guys know a little bit about more of the research um, about, you know, like what plants you can grow, what plants are more beneficial, what soil types, um, you know, what system is better, a modular system or, uh, you know, a trellis system? Yeah, yeah. I've heard about Andy Kaufman and his research. I know he's been researching for about 10 years, and now he's starting to implement these projects in the back of Manoa um, with native plants specifically. And um, I really appreciate his work, and we're trying to do this very, something very similar. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to grow uh, native plants um, on green facades. And we're sort of relying on the um, the fact that native plants are adjusted to the natural ecosystem and um, using that. Um, to uh, act as um, an aid in maintaining these green facades, what they do best, right? So I think there's two important points to bring up. So first of all, when you're talking about which plants are gonna be the most successful, native Hawaiian plants are vulnerable right? You have these invasive species which clearly outgrow them. However, it is possible, especially in, in a controlled environment like a green facade, to take good care of the native plants and give them a place to safely thrive. What's important about native Hawaiian plants, as Andy Kaufman mentioned, we, we visited him in uh, his lab, is that they need a lot of babysitting. And so in order to have a successful green facade using native Hawaiian plants or, you know, Polynesian introduced plants, endemic plants, what you need is a rigorous maintenance system in that first year. And you have to be aware of the fact that in Hawaii, while you have this incredible tropical atmosphere, which helps plant grow, you also have rats that have no natural predators and you have pests that you have to manage. And so having a smart and Open-minded, integrated pest management system is really how you have a successful green facade. And I know that Andy Kaufman is doing the necessary research to really bring Hawaii to the to the forefront in terms of ability to maintain these green facades. I think what separate what's different of what we're doing with um, Dr. Andy Kaufman is that he's doing this research through the University of Hawaii. And we're obviously a private business. And so what we're really looking at is seeing the results in other states and other countries, um, looking at the data from University of Maryland and Canada, which shows how 
uh, green facades can insulate buildings, uh, reduce outdoor temperatures by up to 4 degrees Celsius or more, indoor temperatures by up to 24 degrees Fahrenheit. These are all uh, data, pieces of data that we can use in um, justifying our business model. And I think the research that uh, Andy Kaufman is doing is going to be great in terms of incentivizing the university and the government to invest in this prototype here in Hawaii. But I think the private business allows us to move things a little faster. Um, and, and it relies on data that is pretty consistent across the U.S. and the world. Also, going back to the basics and using less mechanics with our green facades, I think is we have a bit of an advantage there because there's less mechanics. And, um, you know, we're using a simple trellis system and we're allowing using vines and allowing them to simply climb up the wall um, instead of using a soil medium where um, there's an irrigation system and, you know, failure is prone to failure. Under, you know, the large green infrastructure umbrella, many people have um, opposition to green infrastructure or, you know, alternative uh, sustainable designs. I want to use a different word than sustainable because... Yeah, we uh, overuse that word a lot. Yeah, it, it, it definitely puts people off. Mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, uh, the issue is maintenance. People are like, no, well, first of all, is it really solving the issue? Like how many contaminants is it taking it out of the system and how much water is it actually restore, you know, absorbing? And, and then not only that is I'm going to have to train my guy, uh, or gal to go maintain this thing. And, you know, how do you get maintenance to a layman's terms of where it's going to be easy for the average everyday people or for grandma and grandpa? I think that's the biggest issue is like getting people around the maintenance issue. Um, are you guys going to like you mentioned that, you know, in the first year, that's like kind of where you you baby this thing to to do what it's what it does. Is that going to be part of like your package as a business of um you know, and, and then I'm also curious about soil, you know, like once the plants there, are, are, is there going to be a plan for soil? Um, soil checks. Yeah, soil checks. Yeah. Or like changing soils or. Right now, the maintenance package that we're including in our installation is the first year, a uh, very consistent maintenance schedule based on the needs of the particular wall. Obviously, needs are going to vary. But um, one thing that is for sure is you have twice a year, uh, soil checks, making sure that the plants are doing well. And in that first year, any plant that has issues, we'd replace full warranty. And, you know, th the thing about plants is that they're, they are going to require maintenance. You know, there's no getting around the fact that there is some care that is required for sustaining these plants and keeping them alive. You can't just put them there and pretend they don't exist and expect the benefits to come around. But I think just twice a year of checking there's pH levels, um, ensuring the health of the plants, and basic watering schedules isn't a lot to ask for the benefits that they provide. Right. And it's, it's very, very difficult in a place like Hawaii, which has so many different microclimates across an area just as small as, you know, Waikiki for one, or let's just talk about Oahu as a whole. Um, plants in one area are going to grow fine, and those same plants in another area won't take at all. We have 12 of the 13 worldwide soil orders here in Hawaii. The only one that we don't have is the one that you find under frozen tundra, which is kind of understandable. But the variability of ecosystems in Hawaii is so great that you need that sort of individual plan for each soil type, for each plant type. And it really does require that sort of extended maintenance 
for these green infrastructure projects, which are centered around these sort of human impact, not human impacted, but human environments where we live and we work and we, you know, go out to bars and have fun at restaurants and stuff. Um, I do want to briefly talk about the other type of green infrastructure, the type of green infrastructure that goes into um, less human impacted areas. For me, it always comes back to ecosystem services. Ecosystem services are the benefits that we get from functioning ecosystems. And so often, like with the Alawai flood management project, we have a situation where there is a very clear need that humans need to do something in order to improve our quality of life. But it's a shame that the plan that's been put forward is one that sacrifices the ecosystems for the benefit of the humans. Uh, green infrastructure is something that can sort of shift that paradigm where we have human development and expansion in a way that promotes ecosystem health and resiliency and not only uh, maintains but potentially expands the benefits that we get from ecosystem services, which include things like clean water and healthy soil, which we use to grow the food that we eat. Definitely. Um, there are things like living machines. They are they don't take a lot of space, but they um, filter water, like oil contaminants, and they have these modular systems where they're like aquaponic t tanks, really. Yeah, these things are very cool. Yeah, and you have uh, cells in these aquaponic tanks of like microbes and algae, and uh, the critters that are doing the work as far as cleaning water and, and using these nutrients for their processes. And so this water goes through tank by tank and gets filtered and filtered, um, and then it gets put back out into the water. And, and so the EPA did this, a study on these types of, of design systems, um, and so they've proven to do some really great work, and in response, they, they grow plants, too. So um, in a very small space, you can treat water and also provide food, and, and there's other designs, too. I mean, that's just one that comes to the top of my head. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Arella, you mentioned a little bit earlier that there are some um, detractors uh, people who are against green infrastructure, some people say that, oh, these things don't work as well as, you know, our conventional development, big sort of like channel system, uh, pour lots of concrete, yeah. put in a bunch of metal, bunch of shovels and big equipment. Right. But that's not actually true. Um, the Nature Conservancy actually put out a very extensive report in 2014 um, called A Flood of Benefits. It's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty good title, right? But they sort of outline these different green infrastructure projects and their ability to replace these non-green infrastructure things that we put into canals. Yeah, like canals and also just general like um, you know, we're putting in a new development so that people can live somewhere. But how can we do that in a way that doesn't just destroy the area where it's being built? You know, we can, we as people have the capability and the responsibility to promote the ecosystem services that we're getting from these functioning ecosystems. And um, it's not good enough for us to just say, oh, we need to do this for the good of the people. Like, we need to manage these ecosystems for the good of the people. Right. And we, we have the capacity, we're smart enough and forward thinking enough that we can come up with these new ideas and new solutions 
You know, I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we say, oh, we just can't figure it out. I guess we'll just have to take the worst option. So what are the what are the best ways for people to take these tangible steps, whether they have a home and they have space that they can cultivate green spaces or they're just they would just want to engage as active citizens on these larger infrastructure projects? What are the best ways to take action uh, as local Hawaii residents? Well, I think something that's really important for everybody to do is to pay attention to what's happening in the state and local legislature. Um, I don't know the website offhand, but I'm pretty sure you can just Google what's happening in my local legislature and you'll find some pretty good results. Uh, Being on top of certain bills that are being introduced, like Bill 40, which is a ban on styrofoam and other plastics, uh, and showing up providing testimony and actually voting on these things is a great way for people to get involved because not everybody has a yard where they can put in an extensive, you know, multi-storied, highly diverse agroforest. Like I live in an apartment. All I have is a lanai. So I can basically just do potted plants out there. It's good for me and my like personal emotional benefits, but it doesn't really add anything from a ecosystem standpoint. I also think that there's some first steps before people take action. I interviewed about 20 professionals that work with stormwater management and who have uh, businesses in green infrastructure or they're possibly nonprofits that work in the community with stormwater. And I identified six major gaps or barriers um, to green infrastructure. And, and one is just sheer education. There's not enough people that really know the stormwater problem and, and the problems that they create. Um, and as well as like having like changing people's paradigm. Um, we kind of had that topic earlier of like allowing people to see that these new um, designs are going to be beneficial and they also have some economic benefits and, and we can invest in these and and it's really a win-win for everybody. There are also some other things like just having tools, like simple tools to help people understand, you know, how much water does my roof carry and understanding like entity roles, like who manages what in the city, um, transparency. So for, you know, a business like you guys to be really transparent about Okay, well, we're going to manage for the first year and okay, this is what you guys want to do after when we leave. Um those types of situations. I think just having people more and more familiar to what what the issue is can help, you know, make practical decisions for the future later. Um, I don't think that we should jump the gun and say like, yeah, let's implement this, but then really haven't thought about it in a practical way. Uh, I also think it's really important to recognize that urbanization can occur without the loss of green space and vegetative services. Um, If we look at Singapore, for example, it's a great example and a great comparison to Hawaii because we share a similar climate and share similar issues that we're grappling with in urban areas, like poor stormwater drainage and intensified heat. Um, And since 2014, Singapore has required um, all new or remodeled buildings to implement green infrastructure. And so I think this is a great step. It has a cooling effect in the urban areas, mitigates flooding, and basically absorbs the impact of intensified heat and heavy rainfall. It's a great, great model. And Singapore is, I think, smaller than the size of Honolulu City uh, and has over 8 million people. So they're able to do it in a really effective way. That's great. Do, Do you have any other ideas of what people can, what action people can take immediately to have 
more of an impact on green infrastructure? My personal opinion is that the fastest way to to create change in our society is through supporting local private businesses or getting out there with your own idea and making a business. Um, because I think that if you look at the United States government, the way it's built is bureaucratic and slow. And that's good for some things, like maintaining a stable society and preventing drastic systemic changes without oversight. But the downfall is it takes 20 years and people still don't acknowledge that climate change is real. You don't have that political will. Whereas on the business side, it just, you know, as Liana mentioned, if you have an idea, you can meet demand. And I think that in all of our communities, you're seeing people, young people who are really interested in these solutions. And the ideas are there. And if you want to go to the local startup in your community that's trying to change things, that's trying to get the, the city government to install a green wall, then you can volunteer or become an intern or participate in some way with these local businesses and create change that doesn't have to overcome bureaucracy. It's really about just feeding that, that need to, to, to help our environment. Yeah, I think playing around with a lot of this stuff and like using these ideas to make your own pilot project and be, and playing around with it is it can be really beneficial. I'm really glad you brought up the role of businesses um, in sort of this green revolution, and I'm using air quotes right now. Um, but so there, I keep hearing this narrative over and over again, and we actually are guilty of talking about it too. What can we as individuals do to make a difference? But the, the answer is actually that the biggest differences can be made through industry. And it's less of an individual person's responsibility to make changes in their lives and to be more sustainable as a singular person. And it's more the responsibility of our large industries to be sustainable and to be environmentally responsible because they're the ones who have the greatest impact. And I think it's it's not fair to say that it's an individual's responsibility to fix the planet, so to speak. And again, I'm using more air quotes. Um, so yeah, if you are an individual and you do want to have a larger impact, try to do it through industry, either by uh, innovating yourself and starting your own startup or just by petitioning current businesses, getting up and standing up for what you think is right. You know, there is a lot of big backlash against uh, a lot of companies recently and their ties to China and basically what's going on between China and Hong Kong right now. And those businesses, some of them have lost significant amounts of money because of it. So we as consumers do have a potential to make impactful changes in industry, even though we're not industry players ourselves. You know, I'm certainly not. I'm not the CEO of anything. Well, and it's going to take over 120 trillion dollars over the next over the next 10 years to achieve the sustainable development goals. And so governments can't do it alone. We need civil society. We need businesses. We need the the nonprofit sector. We need also our educational institutions to really yeah. build that foundation there. Yeah. I, I want to go back and ask ask you all what what has it been like being social entrepreneurs working on this type of infrastructure project here in Hawaii? And what would you do to um, to improve that entrepreneurship ecosystem here? Uh, it's been pretty exciting. I mean, limiting ourselves to using only endemic indigenous and Polynesian introduced plants has allowed us to, um, you know, build partnerships with local um, groups that are that have that share similar similar goals and we can participate in plant conservation efforts across the island. 
there is an excitement here in Hawaii for green enterprise. I mean, uh, as a state that exists in the middle of the ocean and is surrounded by some of the most beautiful places, but is also filling up with these gray soulless structures. Mm -hmm. You see this kind of dichotomy and people are very aware of it and people want more green and people want to help their environment because we all love living here. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a really positive environment, but like anywhere else, I think there is a, an apprehension to change. And there is this idea that, you know, as you brought up, you know, both of you brought up, you know, is this really effective? You know, is green infrastructure really effective? It sounds messy. It sounds um, uh, difficult to maintain. And, you know, I think as both of you mentioned, the most important thing you can do is educate people. Mm -hmm. The study you mentioned by the Nature Conservancy, they showed that nature-based solutions such as green infrastructure can provide up to 37% of the emissions reduction needed by 2030 to keep global temperatures under two degrees Celsius. That's huge. Yeah. No, it's, it's That's big. huge. And you don't need to have the state invest in a super expensive infrastructural revolution to make everything <laughs> super high tech. You just need people to cover their unused walls with green and put the put green on roofs, create a, a greener society and then invest in, you know, uh, rainwater systems uh, and and other um, blue green solutions people and are happier. people are happier like, yeah. and and it's not as expensive as these giant technological uh, innovations which are great but but hard for a state like Hawaii to implement so I think I think just educating people on the fact that it's not this messy daunting yes. ineffective thing it's this manageable beautiful helpful solution that some of the most advanced cities in the world, like Singapore, Oslo, Paris, Milan, that's those are this is what those cities are pursuing. And I think that Hawaii should start to lead the the US in this. Certainly. Hawaii should be leading the US when it comes to issues about sustainability and environmental responsibility. Because we have a greater need for those things than pretty much anywhere else in the mainland. Uh, at least of what I'm aware of. It has a lot to do with our proximity to the ocean and how we have these small islands that encompass these large systems and have all of these different ecosystems on them. Because everything is so compact here, everything affects everything else. Yeah. Everything downstream is affected by everything upstream. And then all of those effects wind up in the ocean. Hawaii needs green infrastructure and needs sustainability and environmental environmentally responsible action. And if we're not leading the U.S. in it, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. Oh, no, I was just going to say, we're going to miss up, miss those opportunities. And But it, it seems like some people are, they see that we're needing it and, you know, they're starting businesses and I'm, you know, I'm really encouraging people to do the same. Um, you know, like I mentioned in the first half of this interview is that our city is going to be mandating um, a fee, a tax fee on the amount of impermeable surface that your that your property has. So we need green space. Yeah, and um, especially low-income areas are disproportionately impacted by climate change. These areas yeah. tend to lack green space mm -hmm. and are dominated by concrete and gray surfaces. And this creates intensified heat and poor stormwater drainage. And, um, you know, these, since these areas are becoming more warm, people are using their ACs more, straining the use of the grid, contributing more and more to climate change. And so by integrating green space into low-income areas, just simply vegetating their uh, buildings, um, we can create a cooling effect, mitigate flooding, and uh, 
poor stormwater drainage and essentially create a better green environment. Yeah. And if, if you want to talk about things that people can do, the EPA has started grants for green infrastructure in low income neighborhoods, because in low income districts, you have this this urban heat island effect, which Leanne is bringing up. And it's clear that you can deal with the stormwater issues in these areas and you can deal with the heat problem in these areas with something as simple as green walls. And so if you are someone who is interested in bringing activism, bringing green infrastructure into your town. If you qualify, you can apply for EPA grants and they will fund these kind of opportunities for you. Um, and that's, you know, that's an indication that the government sees that this needs to be done. It's just very difficult for them to implement. And so you have to take the opportunity for the grants and then do it yourself or find find groups in your community who can help you do that. Yeah, I think after last summer, just about everybody is interested in reducing overall temperatures here in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Over 200 record days of heat just oh, in the last year here. Completely ridiculous. And, and we're actually, we're very lucky compared to other places in the world. Yes, yeah, so. I almost consider turning on my AC unit. That's how hot <laughs> it got. So uh, in closing, I just want to ask again as a future studies uh, PhD student, what are all of your visions for the best case scenario future if people take into account all of these pieces of advice and, and action items? Um, so I'd love to hear from all of you what, what those transformative future scenarios are and, and then a call to action of how people can get involved with what, what you all are working on. Yeah, uh, this kind of goes back to your question, and I uh, was saying, I, I don't think I answered it properly, but there are definitely things that a homeowner or an individual can do um, to to green your space and to green the community, whether that be industry or in your own home, there are definitely avenues in which you can take. And, and my vision, and I, and I see it coming, is that Homeowners at your individual home, you're going to have um, some designs of green infrastructure. It could be simply just disconnecting your downspout drain into a bucket and then hooking a hose to the bottom of that bucket and reusing that water. Um, if everyone has a rain barrel, you're going to you're going to prevent against flooding. And I believe if everyone has a rain barrel, we don't need to dam um, streams and so you'd have your rain barrel, you'd have your rain garden, you'd have your green roof. Um, that's what you would see in the neighborhoods. That's what you would see in community parks um, as well as in in the city. And then you also have the Aopua'a um, idea of management. You have lo'is that, um, that are running in each community that are doing these ecosystem services for us. They're retaining water. They're providing food. Um, they provide... Um, habitat for for um, endemic uh, species. And so that's what I envision. I, I, I hope that that can happen. I would like to see the softening of canals um, where, and even if you have hard canals, you know, implement um, some meandering, implement some, some rough bottom, you know, some artificial wetlands, some artificial habitat um, so we can bring some things back to life. So, I mean, for me, again, it always comes back to ecosystem services. And Aurelia, I'm glad you brought up the Ahupua'a system because that was a system um, put into place by pre-contact Hawaiian um, sort of society uh, where they identified this area of land has specific management needs. 
And so if we treat this area of land as one unit and manage it as one unit, we're able to uh, basically maintain the resources in that area. Especially when we look at the way that human society develops and expands now, we do not take into consideration these needs of the system we're expanding into or the impacts on that system of our expansion. So my vision for the future includes lots of permeable surfaces, especially since, I mean, we need roads and stuff to drive on. We need buildings to live in, but they need to integrate into the natural system in such a way that, it, that they don't disrupt it because we are now losing out on a considerable number of benefits that we normally get from these functional ecosystems. And I can't exactly say where the tipping point is, but I can say that we're certainly closer to it than we've ever been before. I would also like to see everyone have Teslas <laughs> if we're going to, you know, have our roads. Yeah, I, I, we should all have Teslas. That'd be really nice. Yeah, Elon future. Musk, send me a Tesla. <laughs> uh, At least electric cars. Yeah. 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 I, I do also want to encourage people uh, to get involved with some of the, the local sustainability sort of action groups. There's lots of groups at UH. We have a, a whole bevy of registered independent organizations here for students to get involved in. But then there are sort of statewide groups like Surfrider, like the Sierra Club, also like the Society for Conservation Biology. Uh, I definitely encourage everybody to check out you know, those three organizations particularly, and also, you know, just do some Googling. There's lots of good information on Google. But get get involved. Join one of these organizations if you really, really want to. We've got some really exciting stuff actually happening with the Society for Conservation Biology right now. Our policy committee, we recently got two new policy committee chairs, and they are really putting in a lot of work. Um, and our policy committee is, is doing some really cool stuff. We're monitoring Bill 40, um, which I mentioned before, which is that ban on plastics and styrofoam. And we're sort of identifying areas where we can uh, promote these sort of sustainable actions to our legislature. So if you're interested in sort of getting more involved in the policy side of things, I definitely encourage you to go to www.hiscb.org and consider joining our organization and getting involved with the policy committee. Uh, but also do check out Surfrider and the Sierra Club. You know, they do some really, really great work too, especially if you're more of an ocean person than a land person. Go, go to some of those Surfrider beach cleanups. There's some very cool people there, and it's a nice way to spend an afternoon. Uh, you know, we can't avoid urbanization. 55% of the world's population lives in cities, and that's predicted to increase. Um, but we can um, use green infrastructure as a solution. We can have our cities act as a buffer between climate change impacts and us. Mm -hmm. And um, my vision for the future is to create Honolulu um, and make it an urban forest and to implement more greenery into um, the urban core. And um, I want Honolulu to be the most resilient and beautiful city in the nation. And, you know, my advice is to get involved in local sustainability groups, like Max mentioned. Um, I didn't even know Manoa Sustainability Council existed at UH until a couple weeks ago, and I started to go um, to the meetings, and it's just great sharing ideas with them and seeing all the efforts going on on the island uh, regarding sustainability. And um, get involved, go to native nurseries, plant native plants at your own home, and, um, you know, just have hope that there are solutions and um, green is the way to go. 
Yeah. So if anybody is looking for a good native plant nursery, I recommend checking out Huiku Maliola. They're they're up in Kanaohe. They do a lot of really, really awesome work, including invasive species removals and native species uh, installments. So yeah, go check them out. They're awesome. They deserve uh, your attention. I guess my dream would somewhat mimic what Liana expressed in the sense that I really hope to see Honolulu and other cities become these urban forests. I think that Singapore really represents the sort of dream that every every city should aspire towards because it shows that it's doable, right? Yeah. You see that you can integrate green into the city and you create these beautiful, whimsical type of sceneries that that aren't just spectacular to look at, but that really help the city run. You, you deal with stormwater management and you create uh, new new habitats for environments so that now the urban area isn't a threat to plants, to native plants, but it's actually, as Leanna said, a canvas for these plants to grow and flourish. So I, I really hope to see that occur. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, um, Aurelia, the fact that Hawaii's state government is going to be taxing people based on their how much concrete surface they have. And I hope to see Honolulu move into the direction of Singapore. Singapore right now, they actually subsidize almost all green infrastructure projects. If you have a green wall project, they'll they'll pay for at least half of it. And so instead of punishing people for not knowing how or not having the means or ideas or a time to figure out how to incorporate green space into their home, give them an incentive and say, if you have an idea, we'll take care of it for you. And I know the government has a lot to spend on, but this has a return on investment. And so it's not something that you're throwing money into for no for no response. It's something that feeds the city, feeds the people in a, in a positive way, um, beautifies neighborhoods, and improves our, our ecosystems. And so I really hope to see the world uh, respond to science and Singapore. There's also um, something that we've talked about, but I really want to drive the point home here. Um, utilizing native, endemic, and Polynesian-introduced plants in these green wall systems. We are facing an extinction epidemic, not just in Hawaii, but worldwide. Currently, in Hawaii alone, there are 586, at least, different plant and animal species that are facing extinction. Uh, There are several Hawaiian plants that are now extinct in the wild, and they only exist in greenhouses like at the Lion Arboretum Rare Plant Program. Uh, So these green walls and this green infrastructure can serve as a refuge for some of these native plants that have significant cultural value, but now have been displaced, not only by development, but also by the impact of invasive species. Great points. And where can we learn more about Green green Walls Hawaii? Greenwallshawaii.com. And also we have an Instagram account uh, Green Walls Hawaii, spelled exactly how you'd think, no spaces or dashes. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you all so much for coming and speaking with us today for our first Fall 2019 Student Sustainability Coalition Roundtable. Uh, and thank all of you who are listening to KTUH. We're dedicated to bringing sustainability programming and education, and we're just so grateful for all of your support. Uh, please continue to engage with us on social media. Come and get involved at the University of Hawaii system, and also on the international level, that Hawaii 
Hawaii is a local 2030 hub for sustainable development, and we all need to be sustainability ambassadors on the global planetary scale if we really want to tackle these challenges of climate change. Aurelia, Max, Liana, Liliana, thank you all so much. Thank you all for listening to KTUH. Aloha. Aloha.